The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Another year and another clash over New Jersey's budget. Democratic Governor Phil Murphy is wrestling with legislators from his own party over how much to raise taxes and invest in the state's transit system for the 2020 fiscal year, similar to last year's battle that almost shut down the government in Trenton. And he joined to talk about what he's proposing for the state. We started off by asking the governor about the new tax on millionaires in his budget proposal and whether the policy was more about alleviating inequality or raising revenue. I think the bigger headline is we presented a budget that will save $1.1 billion year over year in sustainable savings, largely through health care related costs with our public sector employees. Uh, it's a budget that also stabilized our fiscal reality, invests in the middle class, and as you suggest, it asks for tax fairness uh, for the very wealthiest among us. By the way, about 18 or 19,000 out of the 9 million who call New Jersey home to pay their fair share so that we can make those historic investments in the middle class and things like education and J Transit and other uh, big middle class needs that have been been unmet uh, during the entire previous administration. So I feel like it hangs together well. I'm proud of it. And uh, we presented it, as you suggested, a few days ago. Well, uh, Governor, there's always a challenge in trying to balance all of these issues, particularly when you're talking about raising taxes. Uh, we know that you were supposed to meet, you know, your administration was supposed to meet with the major credit rating agencies yesterday. Uh, and I wonder what, what you can share with us about what they said uh, about the budget and how that might factor into things. So I, in fact, did meet with the three big agencies, Moody's, Fitch and S&P. They were good discussions, largely fact-based. Uh, I'll leave the specifics aside, but nothing in those conversations surprised us. Uh, they're looking for the same things that we're looking for in many respects. What are you doing to save costs? What are you doing to stabilize your reality, which, which for us means less reliance on one-shot revenues, less fund diversions, bigger surpluses? Uh, you know, they want to see a, a growing, vibrant economy, which means in our state, we're the quintessential middle class state. So uh, public education that's funded, transportation that, that's funded and working. And then finally, again, that you've got steady streams of revenue that are reliable and predictable. So those are their, their concerns and their, and their issues are about what we would expect. Uh, and that's the budget in many respects that we presented. Part of that budget, and you mentioned it before, Governor, was the health care, renegotiating health care contracts in particular with the state employees. $800 million you say you're going to save through this. This is pretty phenomenal if it works. Would it, can it be replicated elsewhere? Can you break down the savings by sector? 
I don't know if you can. Re- I know New Jersey, obviously, uh, and those savings are real. So it's it's not. Will we be able to achieve them? We wouldn't say that we would if we if we knew we couldn't. And, and by the way, Caroline, it's a 16 percent reduction year over year from this year's fiscal budget into next year's on health care uh, costs, uh, which is a pretty significant reduction, what, not just in government circles, but I'd say including the private sector. Uh, and it, it happened and it's come about working with the public sector unions and not jamming things down their throats, which was the old way in our state. Uh, this is working with them through the plan design committees, uh, through uh, collective bargaining, not lowering the health care Uh, coverage of their members or not making their members pay more, but to the contrary, delivering the health care savings more efficiently. Uh, Whether that's a model for others to follow, I'm not sure. I'd also say our conversations haven't ended. Uh, We happen to have presented our budget at a moment in time when we could say with confidence it was $800 million in savings, but those conversations go forward and I'm hopeful we can find more savings, not just in health care, but elsewhere going forward. Governor Murphy, let's talk about some uh, national issues beyond the budget, or sort of other issues. Have you talked to Amazon since they announced that they're pulling out of their Long Island City plan about uh, establishing their second headquarters in New Jersey? I have spoken to Amazon, and the fact of the matter is Amazon employs, I think, 14 or 15,000 people in New Jersey, so they're a big employer. Uh, So that's not necessarily headlines that I would be speaking with them because we speak to them all the time. They're a big presence here. Uh, But I did speak to them, and I reiterated that Newark, the Newark story is getting better by the day. Uh, It's incredibly compelling. Uh, we have the land. Uh, we have the, uh, the, the story, the trajectory. Uh, I believe it continues to be a great story, not just for Amazon, but for companies like it who are looking to put an anchor uh, in a community like this. This is a, a, a town that at, at its peak had 500,000 residents. Today, it's got somewhat under 300,000. So we've got the bones in Newark for a big company to come in uh, to to employ folks, for folks to live here, and at the same time, not push those out who have fought and stayed all these decades. So the answer is yes. And more broadly, Newark's open for business. Will Amazon remain open for business to a certain extent? I want to get your opinion on, Governor, because we've heard from Elizabeth Warren wanting to in some way break up some of these large tech companies, particularly focusing on the likes of Amazon. I want to get your perspective on whether you agree with those sorts of policies and indeed where you see the Democratic Party is moving in general. Is it becoming ever more progressive? Will it remain more moderate, do you think? Well, I I was only told of Senator Warren's uh, plan as I was walking in, so I have to beg ignorance on that, uh, and I look forward to reading more about it. I can't speak to the national reality in our party. I am uh, getting involved in the the Democratic Governors Association as the vice chair and chair-elect, and and that's an important uh, organization for us, but 99% of my life is in New Jersey, and I would just say here that we have occupied a space. Somebody tagged me as a pro-growth progressive, uh, and I'll take that. Uh, and, and importantly, those two notions are not at odds with each other. We believe they feed on each other. Or put differently, we believe you don't make economic progress without social progress, and likewise, you don't make social progress without economic progress. And I think that's a space that feels right for us in New Jersey. We could stand for minimum wage going up, uh, uh, earn sick leave, uh, funding Planned Parenthood, uh, sensible gun safety laws, things that we, uh, sensible immigration 
uh, reforms and policies, but at the same time, be open for business, for businesses big and small and in between. And I think that's a place that we've occupied, we continue to occupy, and it feels right to me. Last Saturday marked 10 years since U.S. stocks hit their lowest point during the financial crisis. A decade later, the fundamentals of the American economy are strong, but, quote, there's a spirit of thinking it ought to come to an end soon. That's according to Nobel laureate and Yale economics professor Robert Schiller, who came on to talk about the decade-long bull run. And we started by asking about those recent comments and if he is expecting a negative return. Uh, it's very hard to predict the stock market. Uh, at, you know, the talk about the longest bull market is something that uh, peaked last year, and it it seemed to have a temporary uh, effect on the market. Uh, but now it's that uh, narrative is fading, so we've got past that. We're now in record territory, and we're still going, still going fairly well. Professor Schiller, what's the narrative right now, in your view? Well, unfortunately, there is not just one narrative. Uh, and, if it, you know, some narratives are very short-term, like a particular policy rule. Uh, but other, other narratives are, that might help account for long swings like we've seen in this bull market tend to be more psychological or social or political. And uh, I, I can talk about factors, but they'll, they'll be very familiar to you. And you might doubt that they're driving the market. But they may well be over the long term. What else can account for the huge upturn in the stock market that we've seen and in earnings as well uh, that reflects buying patterns? Well, well, when you look at sort of what's been happening in the market uh, recently uh, with regards to sentiment, uh, can you connect that to sort of any other time in history where we've had a market that's been driven so much more by sentiment rather than the underlying fundamentals? Uh, I don't like to be alarmist, but you really want me to answer, answer <laughs> sure, that question. Sure, you're here. <laughs> 1929, that was a very psychological, the, the, the market before 1920, but I'm not predicting 29 again. Right, yeah. But that has to be the answer to your question. Or the other example would be the 1990s leading up to 2000, the so-called dot-com boom, although it was broader, much broader than just dot-com stocks. It was the Internet. The Internet was the new, new thing. And people were right that the Internet is going to be important. We know that now. They knew it then. But they overreacted. What about you've, the talk or that you've said that the U.S. is due a recession? Can sentiment continue to move apart from fundamentals, not only just slowing, but actually seeing negative growth for two successive quarters? Well, that's what happens in history. It seems like uh, recessions are generally short-term events. Uh, typically a, a few quarters. Uh, the longest uh, recession, by the way, historically, uh, was 19th century, 1873 to 79, where the, the economy was going down for six years. But, you know, that hasn't happened since. It tends to be a short uh, event. Usually they're not that bad. The financial crisis that we just saw 10 years ago was unusually bad. Professor Schiller, the last two recessions that we've seen were catalyzed by what 
you know, the bursting of bubbles, the most recent one, the cr- collapse of the housing bubble, obviously the dot-com bubble before that. Right. During this 10-year expansion, we've seen sort of mini bubble bursts that haven't really been that extreme, but sharp periods in which the euphoria of the market gets taken out. Probably Q4 of last year was one of those periods. 2011 was uh, maybe one of those periods. Did those periods help extend the broader expansion? If you have sort of many smaller bubbles pricked early before right. they get massive, like housing or dot-com, does that allow, in your view, for a longer, more durable expansion? Yeah, the experience. It's, uh, this is a key phrase in the 1920s. Uh, one step down, two steps up. <laughs> one step down, two steps up, uh, referring to the stock market. That, that encourages confidence. You start to think, uh, I've learned, you know, I had the experience of downtrends and it always recovered. But it can be an illusion as well as it was then. All right, so Professor Schiller, when I look at valuations, and this is something that someone pointed out to me last week when we were talking about the 10-year anniversary of this bull market. You've got a price to sales on the S&P at around 2.1. You've got a PE somewhere around 18. And I think on a cyclically adjusted basis, uh, it's still well within the norm, somewhere around 30. These are multiples and valuations that are relatively in line with long-term averages. Is there any reason to think that we should be worried given those valuations? Well, I don't think that one should worry, uh, but I think that one should lean against higher-priced countries or sectors, and uh, the U.S. is about the highest-priced country in the world. Uh, so I, I'm in, you know, I, I recommend investing in the U.S., but a lot of people are overweighted in, in the U.S., maybe out of patriotism. But, you know, there's a, there's a whole world out there, and there's also other asset classes. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer told Congress that he hopes the U.S. is within final weeks of having a trade deal with China. But that prediction came before the Trump administration delayed a meeting between President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping to at least April. We spoke with Kimberly Clausing, professor of economics at Reed College and author of Open, the progressive case for free trade, immigration, and global capital, about the state of politics around trade. With free trade under assault on both sides of the aisle, we asked what the progressive case for free trade should be. Yeah, so I think that international trade gets a bad rap when it comes to the American worker. And if you look at moves away from free trade, like the tariffs that we've seen over the last year, they hurt workers in a number of important ways. Uh, The retaliation hurts soybean farmers. Companies dependent on global supply chains have lowered their profit expectations and have had disruption, and that hurts U.S. workers. But also it's important to remember that tariffs are consumption taxes. So when we lower tariffs, um, people pay less for goods when they go shopping, and and tariffs have been shown to be quite a regressive tax because the poor consume more imports than the rich do as a share of their income. But how do you get that message across to the masses? Because right now in this country, um, you know, there's an academic case for what you said, Mm -hmm. but the Mm -hmm. practical case, at least that's how most people see it, they're not seeing that. So how do you sell that Mm -hmm. to them? 
Yeah, I view trade as sort of like technology. It comes with some harms, like occasionally your jobs can be lost if people get displaced by robots, but very few people want to throw away all the gains that technology brings them on a regular basis, like your phone and your computer are really important, and so are imported goods. So I think the problem with blaming foreigners for our economic problems is, one, there's a lot of other things that are also responsible for those policy changes, market power, technological change, and two, it sort of distracts us from things that we could do for workers that would be much more direct and helpful, like expanding the earned income tax credit or making investments in infrastructure or research. If any, we've heard a lot of perhaps investing in the worker and some new thought pieces coming out, maybe extreme in their nature when you're thinking of the Green New Deal, when you're thinking of some of the views on regulating the big tech. But what within some of the policy ideas that have come forward do you think would actually make most Mm. economic sense and work in practice? Yeah, so um, Harris has suggested, for instance, um, expanding the earned income tax credit, and that can be a really effective way to both encourage work, but also to make sure that the gains in GDP kind of trickle down to the worker, because when you, the earned income tax credit basically is giving people a negative tax rate at the bottom parts of the income distribution, but it isn't very generous to people who don't have children. So you could expand it to be nicer to the childish childless people, but you could also um, make it phase out more slowly to help people further up the income distribution, too. A a common argument is that on net, something like China's entry into the WTO and the global trading system was positive for the economy, but that the distribution of benefits was Mm. skewed so that a bunch of workers got hit by competition from laborers in China and that consumers, maybe wealthier, uh, got cheaper goods. Is there a way to craft those deals so that the benefits are more uh, fairly spread across the economy? Yeah, I don't think the answer is to change the deals themselves. When you look at our trade agreements, we're typically lowering our, our trade barriers very little, and our partners are lowering their trade barriers quite a bit more because we already have very low trade barriers. But I do think that there's a lot of ways to make the whole modern economy, not just trade, but technological change and other forces affecting workers, work better for workers by countering some of these trends with our tax system and by supporting workers and communities by investing in them. And you think we can do that within our system? Uh, we, we, you know, we had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez kind of made news over the weekend where she effectively said capitalism in her mind was irredeemable, at least in the way that she views capitalism. And this is a sentiment that is shared by a lot of people on the left and even on the right. And I'm wondering do we have to shift the system altogether or is there a way we can work within our normal confines of capitalism to correct some of these inequalities? I think there's some really great ways to work within the normal system to correct inequalities. I think what we need is the political will to push on tools that we already know work. Like we know the tax system is a powerful tool. We know labor laws and antitrust can handle some some of the harsh parts of capitalism, but I certainly don't wouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. Capitalism has a lot to offer. Ned Scarlett sat down with Kim Davis, executive vice president of the National Hockey League. Kim spent more than two decades at J.P. Morgan and a four-year stint at Teneo before making a career change to work at the NHL and a job that created just for her, overseeing social impact, growth initiatives, and legislative affairs. Scarlett started by asking what problems she was tasked with solving when she joined the NHL. Uh, it wasn't so much a problem, it was uh, an opportunity, uh, to, to be honest. Uh, and so the, the road to uh, the NHL actually came as a result of me doing a consulting project for the NHL when I was with Teneo. And that project centered around looking at all of 
the league's social assets and, um, and helping the league think about how to really better amplify those assets going forward. Uh, the league was celebrating its centennial, its first 100 years, um, and really thinking about what would define its next 100 years. Uh, and so I made some recommendations. The commissioner liked those recommendations and said, why don't you come and help us execute them? So a real opportunity. And I say opportunity because um, what people don't know is that the league has been doing a lot to help build healthy and vibrant communities for years. But it hasn't really gotten out into the communities, I think, in the ways that really demonstrate what the league has done. Why do you think that is? Is it because it's done at a team level or franchise level as opposed to at the National League level? I think there are, there are a number of reasons. The one that you outlined, I think, you know, 31 clubs in different parts of the country. Um, and so really having a intentional and very integrated approach to that amplification is important, number one. But also I think it goes to um, really um, preconceived notions about the sport of hockey mm -hmm. um, and, and the idea, particularly with women and maybe underrepresented groups to the sport, that, um, that the sport is not for them. Uh, and so even though, for example, uh, for over 20 years we've had programs, youth programs called Hockey is for Everyone. Um, that have touched, you know, hundreds, tens of hundreds uh, of kids. Um, but you go into markets and people say, you're not doing anything mm -hmm. to serve uh, these communities. And so this is an opportunity for us to really, in a very intentional way, integrate all those assets and really talk about how welcoming our sport is. It's not as if there aren't any prominent black players in the NHL. There's some 27 of them and P.K. Subban, Seth Jones, some big names, obviously. The difference here, though, is that hockey's still a very white sport. Mm -hmm. um, it's got these ties to Canadian farm boys from Saskatchewan mm -hmm. or the Northeast boarding schools. Um, how, what are you doing to ensure that the burden is not placed on the Seth Jones, on the P.K. Subans, to do most of the heavy lifting when it comes to really uh, amplifying this message about how hockey's for everyone? Yeah. So one is the, the word that you just used, amplifying. And so we've, we've started a campaign, I will call it. Um, historically, hockey is for everyone has been seen as just honoring differences for a month. Uh, we've really shifted um, and reimagined Hockey is for Everyone so that it is seen as the way we talk about educating, informing, and inspiring year-round. And so part of that is during the year we will amplify different communities so that we can go deep. Mm -hmm. But what we seek to do is to integrate those communities into the mainstream of our programming, our PR, our communications year-round. So as an example, uh, in February, Black History Month, we went really, really deep in um, demonstrating the history of black hockey. We had a six-city tour starting in New York and ending just last week in Washington, D.C., uh, where we had a, a, a mobile museum that went around the country talking about the 200-year history of blacks in the sport of hockey. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Uh, I think when we get the final data on that, we're going to have, you know, touch 6,000 people around the country who many came on the truck and said, I had no idea right. that this is happening. This month for March will be Gender uh, Equality Month, mm. where we will amplify the importance of girls and women in the sport of hockey. Uh, in September, we will amplify Hispanic heritage and look to talk about 
the, the Hispanic and the Latinx community. Uh, in June, we will amplify LGBTQ. And so the opportunity for us to continue to talk about uh, audiences um, that maybe have historically not felt, wel felt welcomed, and for them to know that there is a rich history in our sport, I think, mm -hmm. will be part of the way we will educate, inform, and inspire. All right, I'm waiting for Asian Heritage Month as well. Um, yes. the, you talked about girls and women. The last two All-Star Games featured the involvement of prominent female hockey players, those who competed in the Olympics and did very well there. What prompted this? And I guess the next natural question is, how far does it go? Yeah, it, it goes pretty far. And so, again, back to the point about in order for us to inspire, we have to make sure that we educate and inform. Uh, women's hockey in the, in the sport goes back to the 1800s. Uh, there's reported back in 1881 an article in the Ottawa paper about the first two women leagues. Um, you, you see that we have um, two women leagues, one in the United States and one in Canada. But more importantly than that, the fastest growing part of our participation is girls hockey, as reported by USA Hockey. Mm -hmm. um, growing at a rate of something like 9% over the past 10 years. Um, when you think about women in our sport, not just as players, but in the, in the, in the front office, um, as sportscasters, um, as consumers, you know, seven billion dollars of of of, uh, of buying power mm -hmm. of women. Thirty-two percent of our fan base already are females, and so th this speaks to the case of why this has to be an important demographic for our sport. Do you think there will be will get any female players in the NHL in the next? 10 years, 20 years? You have to imagine that that's a possibility, given what we've seen in other sports and what we see in the world. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that the NHL has managed to stay out of politics that the NFL is currently embroiled in? I mean, we talked about how there aren't that many black NHL players, um, but certainly they've felt the... Uh, the, the 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 issues at hand that's being discussed in the NFL. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's good or bad. I, I think uh, anytime you stay out of politics or out of the mainstream, it's probably good at some level. Um, but uh, I think what we have done and demonstrated sort of speaks for itself. What does a public or casual observer, those you meet who come into the mobile um, museums that you set up, mm -hmm. misunderstand the most about hockey? And what, what's the message you want them to take away? Um, I think the, the, there are three things that we see. One is that um, people have notions that it is completely a white male uh, affluent sport. Mm, yes, um, and pick so, up on that point because the equipment is so costly, ice time is costly. Yeah, and, and, and those are the two main reasons for that perception. One is uh, infrastructure cost uh, as well as location um, and economics. Mm -hmm. uh, it is an expensive sport. Um, many don't know that over the past four years through our industry growth fund, which is a partnership between the league and the players association, we've poured over $80 million into communities to subsidize and to offset and to in many cases eliminate the cost of equipment and the cost to learn to skate and learn to play through these kinds of programs. We also have a very powerful school-based program which I think is really going to be the future of diversity called Future Goals mm -hmm. which uses the sport of hockey to teach STEM education. And in many of the schools that we do this in, they're schools where STEM would not be offered. 
because that those curriculums are just not available. Those are expensive curriculums, particularly in underserved communities. How do you use hockey to teach STEM education? So they, they uh, t talk about the, the angles uh, uh. on the ice. So that's the way that they talk about math. And then they talk about the engineering of the ice. And so using all of the STEM principles mm. through the lens of hockey to, to, to talk about STEM, and it's been really well received. So our job now is we've built awareness of the sport through that program, now to connect the dots to get those families and those kids into the stadium and to see their, their games, mm -hmm. and then to become ultimately attached to our sport. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.